For more than 25 years, Atlanta has tuned into my straightforward financial advice. I'm Dr. Gene Hensler, and this is Money Talks, Atlanta's longest-running and most respected money show on radio. My staff and I will give you fact-based, no-nonsense answers to your financial questions. To have your questions answered on the air, send them to me, Dr. Gene at Hensler.com. That's D-R-G-E-N-E at H-E-N-S-S-L-E-R.com. This broadcast of Money Talks originally aired Saturday, May 30th, 2020. The only thing we have to fear... The economic health of this nation has been... ...for essential economic freedoms. The excessive decline... Greed. ...in the dollar... ...it's a late rally on Wall Street... ...too big to fail... ...growing the economy... ...growing the economy... It's amazing what's been going on with the economy. Welcome. Welcome. This is Monito. Monito. Good morning. What up, fam? You're listening to Money Talks, Atlanta's most respected, longest-running money show on radio, and I am Troy Harmon here today with Jennifer Thomas and Shauna Theriault, and uh, they're Good both. Hey, y'all. Uh, they're both on the phone, and I'm in the studio with our producer and. Uh, uh, we're everybody still quarantine style. That's right. Still social distancing. Uh, everybody at least an arm's length away. Um, <laughs> at least I said, and some of us are miles apart, which is uh, just fine during this time. Uh, got some interesting moves in the market. The market just seems like it will not stop going up, which is uh, if you're invested, that's a great thing, right? Yeah. Uh, last five days, we've seen the market gain 2.6%. And uh, would you guys have believed with all that's gone on, obviously, year-to-date, we're still negative, 4.86%. We were down as much as uh, almost 34% between uh, February 19th and March 23rd. But one year, 12 months ago, we were 10.94% lower. So we have gained... Ten point nine four percent in the last twelve months. Wow, that is unbelievable. It really is. It is. Uh, it is. Uh, I mean, you have to rub your eyes and make sure. Of course, be careful. Make sure you wash your hands first. But you got to rub <laughs> you your can't eyes. Can't touch and, your face at all. <laughs> that's right. Uh, you look at the individual sectors over the last twelve months. Information technology, obviously, this was the story all last year. It's up thirty five point eight eight percent. In the last 12 months, uh, health care up 18.73, consumer discretionary up 13.5, the big losers, energy down 30.62, financials down almost 8% over the last 12 months. It's uh, It really is amazing to have uh, sat and witnessed all that we have in the last three months and then to stop and think that uh, the S&P 500 is positive almost well, that's about that's about its average over the last you know since 1925, isn't it? Uh, the annual so, average. So what, a little so what are you thinking, Troy? Are you thinking you know that there's some you know some pullback we're going to be getting or anything? Just you yeah, know, is it, is I, it? I'll be the first to tell you that uh, that the evaluation right now seems a little bit strong to me. When I look at uh, the forward price to earnings ratio, which is the current price divided by the expected earnings over the next 12 months uh we're over 23 now what's normal is around 17 times 
uh, forward earnings for the for the uh, S&P 500's price. Uh, it's a bit lower than that when you look backwards over the last 12 months. It's about 16.5 is the long-term average, but right now even that is stilted as well. So uh, I think the market has rebounded stronger than might have been justified. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I've I've kind of likened what we're dealing with is is more of a um, a natural disaster than it is, you know, some right. kind of an issue like we I had in so. 2007 or 8 where there's uh, fundamental problems with the system. I don't feel like the system is broken. I think what we've done is purposefully broke it, and I think everyone understands why. I would hope so by now. Uh, right. And, and uh, you know, when you when you look at what's going on, it's going to be amazing to me. We had numbers out this week. Uh, showing us jobless claims, 2.1 million more people. So over the last two and a half months, we've seen about 40 million people file for unemployment. Uh, and and right. even after the 40 million, if you look, continuing claims are only about 21 million. So some of the folks that had filed for unemployment early in the situation are back have, in. Working. Exactly. Yeah, they've gone Which back to work. Which makes sense because things are starting to open up. And really, if you think about it, this S&P 500, that's all large cap companies, large capital, you know, larger that companies. That is, that is. I mean, if you look at the small cap sector, it may tell a different story, right? So and it does. Small cap uh, companies are hurting a little bit more than the larger companies. That is true. They have not rebounded like like the larger companies have, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they're they're on the on the bounce as well. Um, right. But, uh, you know, the, well, the you, thing is... You, you may have a lot of those smaller companies may even be companies that aren't even... You know, they don't trade. The oh, yeah, that absolutely. will be lost. So, yeah, yeah. small businesses that are not, um, ac that don't have the access to the financial markets are the ones that, that we're really watching the closest, although nobody's invested uh, widespread in those. You know, the individual entrepreneur is uh, is, is right there, and, and they do um, hire a lot of people in our in our economy so you Absolutely. know it is very important for them to to be healthy as well uh the one thing i've said is you know we're expecting numbers out next friday uh where we'll see what the unemployment uh number is and and some people are saying it might be as much as 19 and a half percent which is absolutely phenomenally large uh in our last economic downturn i think we got close to 10 percent um, but again, you know, there were there were uh, fundamental issues um, we were dealing with then that we're not now going into this. Just three months ago, we would have said, "Yeah, the economy's good, uh, consumers healthy, everything's everything's uh, going to be okay as long as that consumer holds up." Uh, when you have three and a half percent unemployment, you can as assume that things are going to be much better than when you have nineteen and a half percent unemployment. But I think sure. part of what we're seeing now is uh, some people aren't really in a rush to get back to work because they're getting extra money from the government uh, for their unemployment right now. I think after the end of July, you'll probably see uh, a huge um, decline in that unemployment number. And uh, after that time, it's going to be amazing to me if we don't get below 10 percent. But I don't think we'll, we'll go back to three and a half percent unemployment uh, you know, like we started this. In fact, there were a lot of people scratching their heads saying, how in the world do we have so much, um, uh, you know, such a, a robust consumer, um, although, you know, the economy was doing well. And not only that, their their wages were growing and, uh, you know, it, it made uh, everything a lot easier when, when you've got 
everybody that wants a job has a job and uh their their wages are growing they actually feel good about uh consuming yeah. a little e- more even some of the you know even though some things have opened back up and you are seeing that happen they aren't even opening or a lot of them aren't opening up to full capacity which means right. that they're not bringing back all their employees or their employees are not working enough to where they're still getting unemployment in addition to what they're getting while they're still working. Right, right. Now, one thing that we did see this week, uh, the Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index was uh, reported, and um, it it held somewhat steady in May, uh, which to me is amazing. The index now stands at 86.6. It's up from 85.7 in April, and there's two components to this. Um, the present situation and the expectations. The present situation uh, declined a little bit from 73 down to 71.1, which tells us that the consumer confidence is not quite as strong this month as it was last. But the expectations actually improved from 94.3 last month to 96.9 this month, which shows you that uh, the, the consumer is is hopeful that uh, that we're going to have a pretty significant recovery coming forward. Uh, you could probably assume a lot is in there. Maybe they've had the conversations with their employer about uh, when things are going to normalize and, and uh, all of that plays into the confidence of the consumer. Um, some of the other things we saw, MBA mortgage applications rose 2.7%. Uh, and it was really all purchases. The purchase uh, side of that index was up 8.6%, and um, there was a uh, that that actually is a 54% increase since early April. Um, but then we did see refinance applications decline by 0.2%. So uh, a little bit of a mixed bag there. Uh, we got a lot of information about um, home sales. Um, we saw new home sales actually unexpectedly rose 0.6% month over month to an annualized rate of uh, 623,000 homes in April, uh, which beat the forecasts of a 21.9% decline. So, uh, you know, that without a doubt is uh, relatively good news, a lot better than than was expected. Uh, We also saw S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index was released, and this has got a huge lag. These are numbers from from uh, March of 2020. These days, that seems like eons ago, but uh, we did see uh, U.S. price increase of 3.9% in March. Um, And then we had uh, pending home sales um, that were released as well in March, and uh, they dropped 16.3%. uh, that's that's relative to last year, the same time. So, uh, you know, we've got a lot of information. GDP, that was probably the other big number this week. We had instead of 4.8% decline, as was the preliminary number, we are seeing now a 5% decline in the first quarter. So, uh, you know, not the best of news, but also a few glimmers of hope uh, mixed in with this. And I would say the biggest one is that number that uh, consumers are looking to see a little more uh, promise coming our way in the future. Let's uh, take a real quick break right here. When we come back, we'll have a dog of the week and uh, talk about a financial situation that we would like to cover this week. Stick around. You're listening to Money Talks. Money Talks. We'll be right back. Get with it, girl. Baby, 
This is the dog. The dog of the week. All right, dog of the week this week. Uh, I have got a story from the Science Daily. This is going to be great, right? Science Daily. Who reads that? Me and about uh, probably 500 other pointy-headed people. Uh this one is about cocky kids. Uh, they, they've done a study uh, on four-year-olds with overconfidence as uh, risk-taking. They say they're as overconfident as risk-taking bankers. Uh, so these, these folks in uh, the U.K. Uh, set up a study where kids were able to get stickers as they flipped over certain cards. And they went through this this case where they did this for 50 rounds. They they took 50 cards and they they got them from two different stacks. One stack was steady, gave them cards almost every time. Another stack of cards had big swings. It was you either you either get lots of of uh, stickers or you get no stickers, and maybe even have stickers taken away. So these these kids were four, five, and six years old, and they found that as they went through this, and just wait a second, I'm going to tie it back to finance. So when they went through this, they had the kids, and, and the kids would, uh, e- even after 50 iterations of this, uh, and, and not learning well enough that, you know, there was lots of risk in one pile and not so much in the other, uh, the kids were still overconfident in 70% of the cases that they would do better in the next round. They would ask them three questions. Are you going to do better, the same, or worse? And in almost every instance, like I say, 70% of the time, the four-year-olds would say, yeah, they were going to do better. The five- and six-year-olds was about 50% of the time they were saying that they would do better. And then to uh, tie all this back together a little bit with finance, they said that it was similar to people that that, uh, either are risk-averse or very risky, you know, in financial markets. So so they said that instead of doing this where it's been done so many times on adults, they decided just to see when this this, uh, overconfidence aspect of our personalities might start. And they say that it's very early on. And uh, ladies, Jennifer... Shauna, would y'all like to tell me who is the riskiest? Who who are the big risk takers? Is it males or females? I would say males. Yeah. I'm going to go with females. Okay. Well, just, we split it right there. Uh, so in the past with adults, it's always been the male. And believe it or not, in this case, they say that it, it depends on recent history. So if, if the girls were losing over the last three turns, that they would be more conservative. But if they were winning over the last three turns, they would be more risky. They, they, would, they would be more overconfident, thinking that they were going to win no matter what. So that is really a twist in what we've seen in the past. Because like I say, when they did this with adults, it's almost a, a male being a lot more aggressive than the females. And, and ladies, I know you all did a... Uh, uh, y'all, y'all had a, a big event just a few months ago, back early in the year, and um, you know you talked about these things, how women outlive men, and uh, even even uh, knowing that, often they uh, don't take enough risk to make sure that they're well covered in their financial plans. But uh, in this case, it sounds as if women 
actually start out, young ladies uh, seem to start out with a, with a similar overconfidence uh, built into them uh, that, that the guys do. But, um, I mean, so I guess, Shauna, you're right for older men, and uh, <laughs> Jennifer, you were right with the, the young girls. So uh, I know how you can tie it back to finance. It's because every week you say on the radio show that the market's going to be up. Yeah, so I'm overconfident every time. I mean, yeah, I'm the only one who is overconfident. So that is all of that to say we already know what you're going to say at the end of the show. It's up. That's so right. That's, that's what the article is actually written about you. That's that, that actually could be. There we go. We tied well, it back. I said I said the females just because I thought maybe it's such it's a younger generation and they're becoming more risky. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, no. generational and ex ex definitely experience actually has a lot to do with it. I know we've seen a lot of millennials who aren't willing to take much risk because they seem to come of age during, uh, or at least it was a very formative time when they saw uh, things like uh, the tech bubble burst. And then 2007 and eight for sure was uh, was a, an issue for them that was, you know, during their formative years that made them, more risk averse. But, uh, you know, as we've gone through the 34% decline uh, that we just saw, we have seen uh, people, uh, some on one side and some on the other. Some people would want to be just buying everything in sight because it was on sale, which generally tends to be a good thing. We see history has shown us, uh, you know, a, a good DCA program through uh, through a downturn is, is where it actually works the best. Um, and then we've seen people that get too afraid and, and want to sell everything and go to cash or buy bonds or, or whatever. So um, we do have to deal with that as investors. We have to, um, you know, deal with with even those that are in the profession. I know Bill says it all the time. He doesn't manage his own money, and there's a reason because, uh, you know, when I'm managing somebody else's money, I can be a whole lot clearer-headed. But uh, this is one of those things. It's just about human beings and often you know, we have to, to consider that. Uh, we've got a case study that we wanted to talk about this week. Uh, names have been changed to protect the guilty, and uh, uh, we've got a situation where we're going to call them Margaret and Jeffrey, who are in their mid-70s. Um, they are married, and they have a son who has his own children, a 7- and a 10-year-old. And uh, they've got a situation that, that actually ties into... Um, the the new rules that were enacted late in uh, 2019, wherein uh, inherited IRAs have to actually be used with or converted, I guess we'll call it, within uh, within 10 years of their their uh, receipt from the next generation. So Jennifer, I know you've got a lot of information on this, um, and uh, Margaret and Jeffrey have a lot more. They say they don't currently need all their RMDs for living expenses, um, so they transfer the distributions to their taxable account, uh, and they had planned to provide retirement funds for their kids and also maybe uh, some college money for the grandkids. Um, but what they're trying to do is figure out a way that they can get this money transferred from themselves to the kids and the grandkids in the most tax-efficient way possible, as I understand it. Jennifer, is that is that a fair depiction? Right, or, you know, the, the, I think they're concerned that they now have to, the children or their son will have to take it out over 10 years once they pass away, and that money is taxable to them. Um, so, you know, we did ask some information about what 
you know, tax bracket that the son may be in. They um, indicated that between him and his wife that they may make, they don't, that, you know, that they make somewhere less than $100,000 a year. So while that might not be great news for them saving, you know, currently, it would help them in the fact that if they were still in that type of um, income bracket that, you know, if you took right now, they say they have about 900,000, um, assuming that they passed away today, then they, so if you estimate that they have to take that and they take it out evenly, that's about $90,000 a year. So their son is going to be taxed on that 90,000. So being in a lower tax bracket would actually help with the fact that they wouldn't have to pay um, as much tax as if they were a very high earner and had to take it out, um, you know, during those years. The other thing is you don't know, like, because you don't know when you're going to pass away, it very well could be that they may be retired at that time. So they could even be in a lower tax bracket. Um, you know, we, the thing about the new rules is you don't have to take anything out in a specific year. There is no required distribution in those 10 years it just all has to be out by the 10th year so if they knew when they you know if if they passed away and they knew that they were going to work for five more years then they may not want to take anything out for those five years but then begin taking it out you know for the next five um, so that they're doing that things that the um, parents or grandparents could do with that have the IRA money currently if they're not currently doing charitable, like if they do charitable contributions each year to, you know, charities or churches or whatever, if they're not doing it from the IRAs, then I would do that from the IRAs. It, um, you know, it gets to come out without, uh, you don't get a deduction for it, but you don't have to pay tax on it, and it's going to reduce down your IRA balance. So, um, you know, this year they might think about, looking at converting some money to a Roth, um, which would also then be tax-free to their son because they don't have to make a required minimum distribution this year. Now, I don't, you know, they'll have to look at whether or not they want to do that um, because they're going to have to pay the tax on it. Yeah. Um, so I would talk with their CPA. Um, well, Jennifer, why don't we take a real... things that I can think of. Yeah, let's take a real quick break. When we come back, we'll finish this up. But uh, we'll break here and uh, talk some more about Margaret and Jeffrey when we come back. We're listening to Money Talks. When things go wrong, you're scared. Knowledge is power. There's a lot about this virus that we don't know. This is Money Talks. We're back. You're listening to Money Talks. I'm Troy Harmon here today with uh, Jennifer Thomas and Shauna Theriault. Um, we love to hear from our listeners, and uh, we'd love to hear your questions, especially and answer them on the air. If you have a question, we'd love for you to call uh, our question hotline, the number is one eight five five four two nine nine one six six. The way it works, you'll call, you'll get our recording uh, at the beep. You can leave your name and uh, contact information and your question. We'll play your question on the air and answer right behind it. 
Uh, if you prefer to call and talk to a human being, you can do that as well. You can call us at 770-429-9166 and uh, ask for the radio show or Kelly Lynn, and you will get uh, she will get our, your question to us. Uh, if you prefer not to use your phone in that way, you can email us at drgene at hensler.com. That's spelled D-R-G-E-N-E at H-E-N-S-S-L-E-R.com. Or you can go to our website, hensler.com. We've got loads of information uh, that you can peruse, uh, a lot of information about uh, COVID-19, coronavirus, uh, how you can uh, take advantage of the, the uh uh, opportunities that the government has laid out to help during uh, during this odd economic time. Uh, and then there's basic financial planning questions, tax uh, information, loads of information that uh, you can get. Now, I did mention that I'm uh, uh, joined today by Jennifer Thomas and Shauna Theriault. And if you want to contact either one of them for financial planning advice, uh, Shauna is also... Uh, CPA and a um, uh, CDFA. Did I get that right, Shauna? Yes, you did. Yeah, yes, CDFA. You did. All right. And uh, Jennifer is a um, CFP. Shauna, too, is a CFP. Shauna's got alphabet soup at the end of her name. Um, <laughs> but if you uh, if you have questions that we could help you with, we'd surely love to hear from you. Uh, financial tax um that CDFA is a certified divorce financial analyst. Uh, so if uh, if you're a couple or an individual who is going through a divorce and and need uh, need some help on you know your your finances, Shauna can definitely help you with that. And again, that number is seven seven zero four two nine nine one six six. So before the break, we were talking about a situation wherein Margaret and Jeffrey uh, have some assets that uh, they are trying to decide exactly how they might go about uh, getting these in the hands of their son and grandchildren uh, over time without burdening them too much with uh, taxation. And, and Jennifer, you've gone through some of this already. Uh, the, the assets that we're talking about mostly are in uh, an individual retirement account and the, the uh, new rules on that require that the money is uh, converted to a taxable situation, basically taken out of the IRA within 10 years. And there's no, um, as you mentioned, there's there's no uh, set schedule. It's just got to be out within 10 years. So you could do nothing for nine years, and in the 10th year you have to take it out or anything Correct. prior to that. You could even do that reverse and take it out mm-hmm. early. Uh, Jennifer, well, and, you had mentioned. And, you know, to think about, you know, we were talking about the situation too, and to think about it, I mean, you don't know when your parents, you know, they're going to pass away. So right. you may not even be working at that point. And yeah. they could be doing all of this and paying taxes now for no reason. That's correct. You know, so that's that's where it's, you know, it's hard to do planning when we don't know, you know, when someone's going to pass away. But, you know, Jennifer mentioned a Roth conversion. That's a good that's a good idea this year since you don't have to do the requirement on distribution, you know, and so that, that would be a good way to reduce, you know, but there'd be tax due on it today. But if right. the you account would... values are down, it may be a good play. So you would convert your traditional IRA into a Roth IRA, which wouldn't be taxed anymore, but you have to pay the taxes up front. So instead of taking money out of the account this year just for your consumption, since you don't have to because uh, rules surrounding the response to COVID-19, 
you could use that money to pay the taxes is the strategy that you're talking about, right? Exactly. Okay. Right. Uh, and, and we, you know, we're not in any way suggesting that they convert the whole thing, but they could convert a portion of it. They could even look at, okay, if, if I don't have to take my required minimum distribution this year, what tax bracket does it put me in? You know, it may put them in a lower tax bracket, and then they may either choose to go ahead and withdraw you know, as much as they can to stay in that tax bracket. So they're pulling more out at a lower tax bracket now. Um, you know, so there's different things that you could do. You could do that or look at converting the difference to a Roth. I mean, there's, you know, there are um, things that you could try to see if you could get it out in a lower tax bracket. But again, you don't really know what, you know, but they've indicated that their son is not really in a, you know, it appears that he wouldn't be in a high tax bracket. So it may not be that big of a deal. The other concern that they have is that the wife's parents also, um, they appear to be well off and they have said that they're taking uh, care of the college for the children, but they have no way of knowing of whether or not um, that's actually going to be the case. And they wanted, you know, some help on how to talk to the children and the in-laws directly about what the, their plans are. Um, that's unusual, right, I Jennifer? Well, I mean, I've not had a situation where people are talking with the other in-laws, but, um, you know, I, I think talking with your children and asking them, I know that you've said that, um, you know, your wife's children or parents are paying or, you know, are going to provide for college. We want to make sure that that is, you know, that we don't need to do anything to help. I mean, I think if you're approaching it from, you're all there for the grandchildren, they're going to be happy to talk to you about it. You know, it's not every, you know, while that is a big thing that grandparents like to, to take care of, we see a lot of that. You don't want to put, like, we could suggest that you open a 529 plan, and it can go between children, and it can even go to other relatives, but because he's your only son, that may limit you know, the relatives in, on your side of the family that that money could be used for. Um, so you don't want to overfund it. The other option that you have is if you want to make sure that there's a set amount of money set aside for the children and they could either use it for college or something else, you could set up a custodial account for the children. Um, but again, that that is an actual gift to the children and it's irrevocable. So if they graduate high school and decide to take off and, um, you know, buy a motorcycle and travel across the country to California Join and the not foreign go to college, legion. they can do that. <laughs> yeah, it is their money. So, it the is age their of, money. At the so, age of consent, it becomes theirs. Mm -hmm. I mean, if your, in -law, if, um, your daughter-in-law's parents are willing to sit down with you, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking you know, your son and daughter-in-law, hey, we really want to make sure that we're doing this in the best way to help your family. So if they're open to talking to us about it, we'd love to, you know, to do that. I know it's awkward, but I mean, if I think if you just approach it from the fact that you're really trying to help their family, I think they would, you know, I know as a, as a child and as a grandparent, I would, you know, be open to that. Um, well, that uh, yeah. I'm, I, who who is gonna who's gonna want to refuse somebody 
looking to help them. I can't imagine. Yeah. But but you're right. It is really rare to see uh, a, a, even often a, a uh, parent and their children planning their finances together. Uh, but it right. would be even more rare to see two couples who have uh, the family in common to to uh, try and plan together. That is uh, that is a bit of a s- serious situation. But uh, I, I think you're right, Jennifer. I think if you just start with the parents, it's probably uh, a, you could open the discussion and see how far it goes. Hopefully they yeah, can and fr- get some good advice. Yeah, and just a personal note, I mean, my mother is still living. You know, I am a grandmother, so she's a great-grandmother. Um, you know, and she's always trying to do for me and my children and now my grandchild. But I also want to see her enjoy what she has. Exactly. And so, you know, just make sure that, um, you know, you aren't forgetting about your own retirement and you enjoy what you have and you're able. But a lot of times I know what you get enjoyment from is doing things for your children and grandchildren. So don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't understand that. But, you know, looking at it the other way, I want to see my mom do the things that she wants to do. Absolutely. You save the money not to just pass it on to the next generation. It, uh, there, there's no reason that you shouldn't live and enjoy some of it, at least. Right. All right. Well, uh, we are going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, we will talk about some uh, financial situations, some other questions that we have. Uh, we've got a... Uh, question on our question hotline that we'll cover but uh, let's first pay a few bills when we come back you'll hear some more answers to your financial questions you're listening to money talks stick around and we have the best economy we've ever had and then one day you have to close it down in order to defeat this enemy when things go wrong, go wrong. knowledge is his power. This is Money Talks. We're back. You're listening to Money Talks. I'm Troy Harmon here today with Jennifer Thomas and Shauna Theriault. And um, we have uh, been answering a few questions that we've gotten today. We've got uh, a way that any of y'all, if you're listening, can uh, contact us on our question hotline. The number is one eight five five four two nine nine one six six. You can also call and talk to a human, calling seven seven zero four two nine nine one six six, or you can email us at drgene at hensler dot com. That's spelled D R G E N E at H E N S S L E R dot com. Or you can go to our website, Hensler.com, spelled in the same way, H-E-N-S-S-L-E-R.com. And uh, there's lots and lots of information that's downloaded. Uh, we have a question today from our question hotline from Phil. And uh, I want to get right into that one. So here is the question from Phil. Hi, I'd like your comments on something that Ron Paul suggested several years ago when the national debt had risen and risen and risen, of course, nowhere near what it's risen to today. But he proposed that the Treasury could do a selective default on the money that is owed by them to the Fed. Uh, Nobody else would be defaulted. Only the Fed balances would be defaulted. I don't know enough about how the Fed works internally to discern what the impact or the surprise 
results of that might be. Can you think of any unintended consequences, or how would that affect things? If you could discuss that, I would appreciate it. Thanks for the question, Phil. And, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. A few years ago, Ron Paul talked about uh, what would happen or actually recommended the the Treasury defaulting on bonds that were owned by the Federal Reserve. And, uh, it, you know, if you think about it, the, the Federal Reserve um, owns bonds that were issued by the government. The way that that works is uh, they put cash into the system and uh, take the bond um, as they are paid the interest on those bonds. They actually give that money back to the Treasury. Uh, so it does seem as if they wouldn't, you know, nobody would be damaged in that. But if you think about what it is, it's a tool that they also use. So when they're holding the bonds, uh, when they try to unravel the, the balance sheet, what they'll do often is uh, they'll they'll sell those bonds back into the public. Lately, they've only been talking about allowing them to roll off and mature. Uh, they take the the proceeds, and you know the the cash then comes out of the system. So, uh, what it is is a way to um, manage inflation and the money supply, and allowing those to default then takes away that piece of the of the Fed's. Uh, ability to uh, do just that and manage the money supply. So, um, you know, if they sold them into the economy, then those dollars get get uh, taken out of the system if there were uh, inflationary pressure. So, um, other than that, I can't think of a of a reason why you wouldn't want to do that. Uh, the, the bigger problem to me is probably a legal one that I don't fully understand. I don't think. You can selectively default only on bonds that one uh, one particular holder owns uh, without making it a, a full-on default on the system. So um, that's that is uh, is the the best I've got for you. I know it was talked about a lot in 2011 when we were nearing the fiscal cliff. Uh, glad all that's behind us, but we still have one thing that's overhanging from that period. And that is the fact that the uh, U.S. debt got downgraded from AAA to AA uh, plus by uh, S&P, and it remains that way today. Strange thing is, though, even in a downgrade, when uh, there was fear in the market, uh, people bought more bonds, so the price went up and the yield went down. That's uh, very rare. Uh, you don't see that in uh, in the corporate world for sure. Um, but again, thanks for the question. Uh, we've got another here that uh, comes to us from Dennis and Lisa that say uh, we've been tri uh, trimming our consumer discretionary uh, sector holdings since the beginning of the year, so we're not in the worst position. Dennis wants to overweight in pharmaceutical companies, uh, Pfizer, Sanofi, Gilead, and Mylan. I think it's too much. Do we buy all four? Uh, it sounds to me like you're trying to buy um, the whole pharmaceutical pharmaceutical industry um, in doing that, and I think it probably is a little uh, a way that I would help if I can to reduce some of your options is uh, uh, just from the four that you've mentioned, we can, uh, we can peruse through what we've got here if I can get my notes open. Uh, first of all, Mylan doesn't meet our financial criteria. Uh, for investment. The financial strength and safety doesn't meet. Uh, Gilead has done well during the whole COVID-19 um, period because of their drug remdesivir. 
they were one of the few companies who had been already trying to so, uh, solve a uh, coronavirus-related uh, issue. And I think remdesivir had been uh, used initially uh, to attack uh, Ebola, um, but it has shown some some promise. So, uh, you know, the price of, of Gilead didn't fall like the market did. We do recommend it for our clients' holdings. Um, Pfizer and Sanofi are both um, looking for a vaccine. Sanofi is in the middle of an issue with their CEO uh, statement that the U.S. helped fund a vaccine and uh, the U.S. will get the first dibs at that vaccine if it is found. Uh, they are headquartered in France and the French government didn't take too, shine, too much of a shine to, uh, to that issue. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking at uh, something that might be a little more beaten up, maybe Sanofi, especially at home, so you're going to buy it as an ADR in the U.S. Um, if you're just looking at Pfizer, um, Sanofi, and uh, Gilead, then as far as their fundamentals, uh, Pfizer's got a five-year earnings growth rate of 3.37%. It's expected to grow at about three and a quarter going forward. Uh, they're profitable, but the price is big compared to their growth. Uh, peg of 4.07 is uh, huge, in in my opinion. Um, so that was Pfizer. If you look at Sanofi, it's probably the most attractively priced. They've got a five-year earnings growth history of 2% uh, with an expectation of uh, growth at about six and a quarter. Uh, you're paying 2.24 times for that growth uh, in a peg ratio, probably the most reasonably priced of all. Gilead, with all of its positive news in the last few months, is expensive. I'll just be straight up with you, but uh, it it uh, has done quite well. Now, part of Gilead's issue of uh, the last six months or year has been that they uh, cured, um, they cured, uh, uh, what was the, hepatitis C. They, they provided a market cure. And while everybody thinks it's a great and wonderful thing, it is an awesome thing for humanity, uh, but it's not so good for your profitability. When you cure your, uh, your uh, disease, you actually get rid of a lot of potential clients, which, uh, like I said, for humanity is a great thing. Um, but their price right now, their peg is 16.25. We usually like a peg around one. Uh, it's generally unheard of. They've had growth uh, negative over the last five years, negative 13.73, but I just explained why. Uh, that's kind of what uh, what the market will do to you. When you uh, when you cure things, so you know, uh, for a scientist, it's a great and wonderful thing. For the company, you you kill your profits. But uh, we still like Gilead. Uh, if you wanted to pick from any of these others, Pfizer or or Sanofi would probably be really good picks. So uh, we hope you uh, get some benefit from that, Dennis and Lisa. Uh, we have another question that we'd like to cover, and uh, this one comes from Claudia and Arnie. They say, I feel like I saw something on charitable contributions for this year. We're not well off enough to be able to uh, direct our IRA withdrawals to charity, but we uh, do give when we, are, uh, when we can, uh, with or without a tax deduction. Wasn't there something about uh, coronavirus-related charitable deductions? And since I'm not a financial planner, I'm going to kick this one to Shauna and Jennifer. What do y'all got? Well, the CARES Act 
Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Shauna. No, the CARES Act did allow um, individuals to claim a $300 above the line deduction for cash contributions made. Um, usually, you know, if you make a cash contribution, if you don't have a lot of income because you're not well off, then, you know, you may not even be able to deduct it. Um, you know, you may not, you may, the standard deduction may, you know, be higher than what your deductions are, so you may not even get to claim it. But if you can claim a $300 above the line deduction, um, meaning it's before, you know, deductions, it takes you straight, straight out of your income. But, um, you know, if you're, if you're not well off, you may be in a lower tax bracket. Um, you know, so it, it may not help you either way, but if you did want to do something to charity because you wanted to do something, that is an option and possible deduction for you. Awesome. Thank you, Shauna. And uh, that is going to wrap it up for our show this week. What do you all say? I think the market's up this week. Jennifer, everybody up. You've been listening to Money Talks. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. All material presented is from sources believed to be reliable and current, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. The contents are intended for general information purposes only. Information provided should not be the sole basis in making any decision and is not intended to replace the advice of qualified professionals, such as tax consultants, insurance advisor, or attorney. Although this material is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with respect to the subject matter, it may not apply in all situations. This is not to be construed as an offer to buy or sell any financial instruments. It is not our intention to state, indicate, or imply in any manner that current or past results are indicative of future profitability or expectations. Portfolio holdings discussed are subject to change. There is no guarantee that in the future these securities will be held in the Hensler accounts. As with all investments, there are associated inherent risks. Please obtain and review all financial material carefully before investing. Hensler is not licensed to offer or sell insurance products. This overview is not to be construed as an offer to purchase any insurance products.